From the team at Splash, I'm Billy Bonson, and this is True Stories of Field Marketing, our podcast where we dive deep into the world of field marketing. You get the inside scoop from the best of the best in the industry, discussing the lessons they've learned, event strategies that work, and their personal secrets to success. On this episode of True Stories of Field Marketing, we sit down with Caitlin Tucker, Senior Director of Experience Marketing at Quantumetric. Uh, recently, Caitlin was gracious enough to take us through her career journey until the present day at Quantum. And over there at Quantum, she's leading the experience marketing team. And they are responsible for managing field and special events, trade shows, digital campaigns, account-based marketing, direct mailing, gifting, social media, you name it. And of course, one of their biggest undertakings is the annual user conference. And Caitlin shared a really interesting story about their annual user conference coming up. We also got to talking about experiential account-based marketing in a hybrid world. And she shared some helpful nuggets I think you and the audience will find very valuable. Okay, let's get to it. Here is our conversation with Caitlin. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to another edition of True Stories of Field Marketing. And today I'm joined by Caitlin Tucker, who is the Senior Director of Experiential Marketing or Experience Marketing, excuse me, at Quantum Metric. Um, Caitlin, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing well, Billy. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I appreciate you taking the time to, to hop on and join us on our podcast. So let's get right into it. The audience would certainly love to know a little bit more about you. So can you, uh, can you give us a little bit about your background, what you've done in your career, where you are now, and maybe talk a little about what you're, what you're currently doing at Quantum Metric? Yeah, absolutely. So I live in Denver, Colorado. I've been here about five years. I'm a Texan by birth, spent most of my life in Texas. Uh, but that mountain air just called to me. So I'm here now. I run the experience marketing team, like you mentioned, at Quantum Metric. Um, I started at this company when we were, I was one of the first 40 employees, a founding marketing member. So I've really seen it go from just a little kind of <laughs> shop to some really explosive and crazy growth. So the last three years has been incredible. Um, I joined in 2018. We are, we help enterprises build better digital products faster uh, with a continuous product design platform. So really spreading that methodology to the market, carving out a new category and seeing the marketing team grow from two when I first joined to 35 today has been a really amazing journey. But before that, I started my career in field. I've always had a passion for field marketing, uh, largely because it's the easiest way to get access to customers and real-time feedback on, on what they care about, what they enjoy. I think it is the you know, the cleanest and most direct line to your audience, to your customers, to really collecting those stories and building that brand affinity. And it's really the only avenue that kind of guarantees that you're building those really meaningful and deep relationships where you can build experiences for people with your brand. I think all too often, especially in B2B tech marketing, which is where I've spent most of my career, we get so focused on the us our product, our story, our value prop, and how can I just get that in front of as many people as possible, right? So what I love about Field is it really challenges you to flip that on its head because you're asking for your most precious resource, which is their time. Usually it's their time during personal hours, even evening events, happy hours, dinners. I mean, that's an audacious ask to think that you're coming up with something that is more valuable than spending time at the gym or at the park or walking your dog or eating dinner with your family. Um, so it's, it's a very humbling role, I think, to be in. Wow. That, I mean, that is a, first of all, beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate that background. And I'm sure the audience does too. But 
the uh, the idea of field marketing being a humbling role is is not one I've heard before. I think if anybody's listening to this, and hopefully there's a lot of people listening to this, but um, for those that are listening to this, I'm I'm sure that you've been humbled by the role in the past. I I personally know I have been. I probably get humbled almost each week by it because to your point, you're asking an audience depending on what industry you're in. And it could be the Office of Finance or engineers and developers, or in the case of myself at Splash, fellow field marketers to dedicate their free time. I mean, that's for lack of a better word, their free time to spending time with, with you and more specifically your brand and your company. And that is a significant ask to make of, of just about anybody, especially nowadays. Before we, we hop, we move on here. I have to ask, you are in Colorado. You are from Texas. You went to the University of Texas. What is that like being a Longhorn in in Buffalo country? Well, I'll tell you, it's less about the college rivalries and competitions. I'll say the question I get asked the most when people find out that I'm recently from Dallas, and I get this less the longer I, the longer time I spend here, is Cowboys. Cowboys versus Broncos. To tell you the truth, I could not care less about either. Both my family back home in Texas and my husband here in Denver would both just, they hate when I say that, but I'd much rather call myself a Longhorn fan than a Cowboys fan for sure. Okay. That's a safe bet. That's a safe bet. So specifically at, at Quantum Metric, I'm curious to understand and know what, you, what your current charter looks like. What's the, what's the composition of the team you're leading? What are, what's the chief focus of, of the group? What is the, what I would call the primary, secondary, and tertiary focus and initiatives for the team right now? So I think experience marketing is a term that doesn't exist on a lot of org charts at a lot of companies. I would concur. I did not. This is one of the first times I've heard of actually. And it didn't exist at Quantumetric when I first started. So even when I, when I joined the company, I was brought on to stand up a field program. Um, and that has really grown into so much more than um, a traditional field role. So I've, I've kind of grown into taking on, my team consists of uh, our field programming, direct mailing gifting, which often lies with fields, partner marketing strategy and ecosystem management, our social media strategy, and then experiential digital campaigns. So we've actually taken the approach of splitting our digital teams between our demand gen teams, and then kind of those more creative brand experience digital activities. Um, and, and the reason we chose to do that and the reason I'm so passionate about experience when it comes to marketing, uh, again, and this might you know be a little bit more specific to B2B tech, which is kind of where I live and breathe, a buyer, you know, you can have the best product out there on the market, but at the end of the day, in addition to purchasing that product, the buyer is purchasing a multi-year relationship with your organization, right? All the support that goes behind that, all that onboarding, all of the, you know, do I trust that when I have an issue, someone's going to answer my ticket in a timely manner? And so all of those elements of field, uh, or I'm sorry, of our experience team are really built to kind of address selling culture in addition to product, right? We're not here just to educate. We're not just here to do, you know, positioning and value prop and education. We're also here to really showcase what we stand for, what our, what our corporate values are, and what doing business with quantum metric really looks like. That's a pretty soft characterization, but I would say that's really the charter of my team is to make sure that we are 
really putting that brand and culture out there into the into the market as well. I'm glad you brought that up. I think sometimes we forget that there's another human being with a job on the other end of the buying uh, cycle, I guess, or on the other side of the buyer's uh, table that is that is putting their reputation and in many respects their job on the line. I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but I think they're putting their their company their reputation at their company on the line when they make a purchasing decision from a technology perspective, especially when they're making a purchasing decision from a technology perspective that has you know a six or seven figure price tag behind it a year. Um, and so while it's great to educate and not not just great, I think it's hugely important to educate buyer on. Um, and the buying team about what we do and, and and how we do it. But I think it's also just as equally important to educate them and to have them get a feel of who we are. Because at the end of the day, especially as you start swimming upstream and start selling deals that are of significant size and value that have uh, long-term implications, uh, you're, you're, you're value selling, yes, but you're also relationship selling as mu- just as much. You are you are selling not only as the salesperson at the field team. You're selling yourself, but you're selling the company. And they they need to be as comfortable with you as humanly possible. Because again, at least in my opinion, I'm curious to see what you think about this. But they're they are putting in many respects their reputation on the line. And and if this thing goes south, it's not going to look good for obviously for you as the vendor, but it's also it's not going to look good for them as well. Well, and that's why field marketing and customer marketing to me are so. It's so important that those two roles are almost zippered up together because um, with that reputation and with that kind of trust building that you have to do uh, that that does fall on, I would say, all elements of marketing, but really heavy in fields, the opportunity to get happy customers in the same room with skeptical prospects is unmatched. And it really doesn't happen in a lot of scenarios other than within field programming. Um, and so that uh, to get your customers to tell your story on your behalf is so much more powerful and comes with just so much more. It's such a quicker path to trust. Yep. Live live testimonials, right? Live references for, for people to, to consume. Switching gears real quick. Do you have, I've asked this of a few people, but do you have an early memory that looking back now makes sense that would have you land in field marketing. I think everybody has their own journey and story, but is there something from your professional or personal, professional career or personal uh, life, I guess I should say, that makes sense to why you're a field marketer today? Uh, yeah. I'm gonna go back to I'm gonna go back to college. I'm gonna go back to the University of Texas at Austin. I would say I think one of the tenants, one of the skills that a, a, that separates a good from a great field marketer is the ability to mobilize an organization to get right. You're working with, whether it's a sales team of a specific region or an entire company, you've got to get them bought into whatever initiative that you're running in order to make it successful. Um, And I first learned that I was a really excellent hype woman and could get people all moving in the same direction when I served as the recruitment chair for my sorority. Um, And I think, you know, you take I, the word sorority come, draws up a lot of feelings from a lot of people. So I hope none of you tuned out just because you heard that I was in a sorority. But um, I will say 
recruitment to join a group of people and commit your college life kind of to that group is some of the most vulnerable marketing I've ever done and will ever do in my career because I don't have a product to stand behind other than myself and my relationships with my friends. So uh, I think um, we could all pay a little more respect <laughs> to sorority recruitment. That's great. Uh, I'm sure there's uh, there's plenty of stories that we'll, we'll, we'll share for another time. As a team lead, I'm curious to to know and understand what does a a day in the life of a of a leader like yourself look like, or I should say, like yourself, but also like a field marketing leader as well. What does a day in the life look like? It's a lot of meetings because this role cannot succeed without constant communication with your sales team. Um, so I would say I am constantly looking for opportunities and forums to solicit feedback and to tap into the brains of our field sales teams and what they're seeing. They're the closest to the customer. Uh, they're getting information from all sorts of different you know, ways that they're in contact. And if you're not keeping a very, very intentional direct line into that team, you're missing out. Um, and if, you know, using data alone, I would say even, and neglecting sentiment and emotion and feeling, and then vice versa as well. It's got to be a good blend of that. So I spend a lot of my day uh, meeting with sales leaders and field teams to make sure that we are completely in the know and in lockstep on how we're targeting accounts and how we're activating uh, them in the field. Any tips and tricks or uh, communication methods that you think work best when communicating to sales? If you don't feel like they're sick of you, then you're not doing enough. Um, <laughs> redundancy, repetitiveness to the point where you want to blow your brains out, uh, I think makes a huge difference. I think a lot of people stop short of, you got to hear a message. We, we understand it as marketers for the market, but we need to remember our sales teams are the same. They need to hear it 11 times before it, before it really sinks in and before it's elevated to the top of their priority list when they've got all those. We, that's so funny you said that because we had a, a sales kickoff in my last company. What was it? Just so right before COVID. And they had... As part of the, uh, the, the SKO uh, sessions, they were talking about a message... Um, does not get delivered, or I shouldn't say delivered, does not get um, grasped until it's delivered at least seven times. So you said 11. I heard seven. It's probably even more than 11, but I, I, I can swear up and down to that. There's, I'm sure you have a thousand examples of this too, but there's times, um, and I love the sales teams I work with. I think they're, they're, they do what I can't do, but there's, t- they, but I'm giving a butt here, but there's times where I, no, I've said something, and I know I've said something at least two or three times. And they ask me for something that it's like it's like the most basic information. You're like pulling your hair out, but then you have to put them yourself into their shoes. Like this is just another thing on their plate. So the seven, eleven, whatever the number is, 25, 35 times that you have to remind somebody, I think is is not because they're not listening or they don't care. They just have so much on their plate. And I think it's important to reinforce messaging. You can't just tell somebody something one time and expect them to grasp the nuances of it. I think it it requires a continuous conversation, continuous enablement, continuous engagement to ensure that they are grasping the finer points of a program, an event, a campaign, whatever it may be. This is a a great seg to... So this is a great seg to the next uh, point I wanted to bring up or next question I had for you. But um, I already know what one of the, the skills or talents is. I think we're, we can all agree it's communication. But um, in your opinion, what are some of the 
critical skills or talents that are essential to being successful in field marketing? I would pair empathy and emotional intelligence up at the top. An understanding, a deep understanding of what motivates your buyer. I mean, like we addressed kind of at the, at the top of the session, you're asking for their most valuable resource, more than budgets, more than, you know, I mean, time, especially during those personal hours, um, you really have to understand what motivates them, what they're willing, what's more valuable to them than that walk with the dog or dinner with kids, uh, if you're going to make that ask. And I think um, that, that there's, there's a little bit of psychology that kind of goes into it. And you need that understanding of good field marketers are usually great interpersonal relationship holders and, and kind of get that feedback from people in their lives. Yep, that I that's a, those are two awesome answers. I'm gonna actually steal that and pretend we didn't talk about that. But I love, <laughs> I love, I love the those answers. Empathy and emotional intelligence is critical. So switching gears real quick, we we call this podcast "True Stories of, of Field Marketing." So we have this little running segment that we do. It's called True Story Time. And today's topic, um, I'd love to learn about a something that did not go the way you planned it. So. I, I personally subscribe to the theory, and I know this is cliche, so forgive me, but I think we learn more from our failures and our successes. And I, I certainly want to, and I'm, we're going to come back to your successes later on, but for this specific purpose and exercise, do you have a, a campaign, an event, a program, however you want to frame it, that comes to mind that you knew almost immediately after launch that mm, this is... This probably is not going to work. <laughs> probably not going to work. Well, this was when I did not know immediately wasn't going to work, but taught me a really valuable lesson. We have, I would say, a very playful uh, brand voice here at Quantum, especially within the experience team. Uh, we like to, I think, you know, with COVID and the transition to virtual, we really challenged ourselves that creativity was going to be what cut through the noise and appealing to people's sense of humor and being a little bit more playful kind of with the experiences that we delivered to market. So we took um, an opportunity to bring in celebrity chef Rick Bayless. We hosted a virtual event where he was coming on to uh, via Zoom teach a margarita making and guacamole making class. It was excellent. Uh, we were so excited about the idea. We put a ton of budget into it. But then our, our marketing of the event, because it was going to be more fun, it was, you know, there was going to be alcohol involved. We wanted to make it feel like a party, like a little bit of escapism. So our campaign messaging around the event was very uh, centered around rock out with your walk out. We're ready to have a good time with you. We sent an email that had a gif of Wayne Brady dancing with um, one of his TV contestants in like an avocado costume. And I, and we, uh, we got some feedback from some of our, cause we, we pretty exclusively sell within enterprises, which can sometimes have, you know, with, you know, if you're selling to like retail banks or maybe some verticals or um, organizations that are a little more buttoned up, like things a little bit more uh, polished or professional, mature. Uh, we did get some feedback from some customers that uh, they felt that that was a little lowbrow. Um, and so it was, a, it was an important lesson to learn that just because we're trying to have uh, 
fun does not always need to come with kind of lowering, lowering your standards or the bar on professionalism, I suppose. So that was an important lesson and, and failure that we learned. I had, <laughs> I had actually something on the inverse on the, on the flip side of that. Um, not, not two and a half years ago, we did a, um, a user group event, at my last company, and we had just gone public. And we, um, my bright idea, and I, I should have known better at the time. At the time, I didn't, but I should have known better even then. Um, my bright idea was like, okay, let's host our user group event. It's like a series of roadshows we're doing. Let's host our user group event at the New York Stock Exchange. It's a really cool venue, at least in my opinion. Is it's it's a it's a really cool venue, objectively. And if you disagree, I'm sorry, you're wrong. But <laughs> it's a cool venue. Um, it's got a lot of prestige. Uh, but it is, admittedly, it's a little stuffy. And the audience that we market to is developers and engineers. And um, it was it was just not a fit from a venue standpoint. It was a square peg in a round hole. It may have made sense for a more senior audience, but for a user group or a user day uh, event, it just was not the right fit. So we had, we had, we had to go back and forth with the stock exchange about... Dress codes because they have a pretty defined and strict dress code. I mean, this is a group of people that come to work in hoodies and jeans. And this was towards the beginning of the summer, like late June. And so in New York, it's obviously can be oppressively hot. So they sometimes tend to work in shorts. And obviously, like that is a no no. So we had to go back and forth with the exchange about the dress code. We had to communicate that out to people. And I think it, we, we did get some feedback that it did turn um, some people off. Like, hey, you know, I'm going into the office and dressing like this. I'm not coming to wear a, a suit and tie or I'm not coming to wear even a pair of dress slacks. So it's funny that you mentioned that because I had the opposite experience with, uh, with a user conference. But you live and you learn. Both of those map back to what we were talking about earlier, a lack of understanding of our audience. Absolutely. Right. Yep. I mean that. You know, that admittedly, I I had come from a place before that that was that's the that like our audience was like that, and I just was I probably more of like a, a horse with the blinders on. I was just going because I knew that worked for me one time, and it was not going to work again. It was just not the right fit, and then we never did anything else there ever again. But to your point, just lack of understanding of the audience, and and yeah, I mean the event was was fine. It went well, um, but. We, I think we had some drop off and we had some people that were like, eh, that's not the brand that we know and love. It's kind of like a little bit of a mess. So I think that's actually a commonplace for a miss, especially with field events, um, is letting momentum and we're already so far down the path override your gut telling you when it's time to make a pivot, trying to stay true to an original plan as opposed to kind of adapting as you learn new information for sure. Yep. Yep. It was, a, it was a pretty significant learning experience. All right. So I wanted to I wanted to dive in and talk a little about your team, your role specifically, but I want to kind of upload it a little bit and talk a little bit more about, I think, experiential marketing. Specifically, I wanted to talk about, I might be coining a term here, um, so forgive me. If this becomes a buzzword, mm, definitely forgive me, but I love it. experiential <laughs> account-based marketing in a hybrid world. A little too buzzy, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep it going. So before we hop into some of the, the, the nitty gritty here, I, I, I'd love to, in your own words, in your own words, just define, um, just define what account-based marketing is, is to you. Cause I think for a period of time there, it was, 
at least again, my opinions, it was such a buzzword that often was, I think, misunderstood and or explained poorly and or perceived as um, something that could be accomplished through a technology purchase. And we're not going to mention any names, but I think we know <laughs> who I'm talking about there. So to you, what it what is account-based marketing and um, how does what what does a successful account-based marketing strategy look like from your perspective, from an experiential perspective? Yeah. So I think that misunderstanding of account-based marketing has also created a lot of anxiety around the term. I think there's a real misconception that you need this fully baked ABM strategy. You need a dedicated budget. You need a team. You need to be an organization or a team of a certain size in order to be successful at it. But I really think we're all overthinking it. (laughs) I think that field marketers have been doing account-based marketing forever. Um, And so uh, for anyone listening, stop stressing yourself out over account-based marketing. (laughs) To me, it really means sales and marketing coming to the table together, agreeing on what does a good account look like for us? What are our most uh, valuable targets that we can go together, that we have the resources and come come up with a strategy to break into that account? And then what are all of the different pathways that we can use to bring all of those, you know, all of the marketing initiatives and activities together to make sure that we're solving the specific challenges that we know exist within that organization. So for me on the experience team, that can look kind of a lot. I mean, it, it, it really means there's no one person. If you have an ABM manager on your team today and are thinking that that person is alone solving for ABM, I think that's a huge mistake. It calls back to a proverb that I'm sure everyone has heard. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. So I think ABM most specifically makes sense uh, when you're selling at that enterprise level, right? When you know that you've got the longest deal cycles, you need to get in touch with the most people, you need multifunctional buy-in, cross-team support for the purchase before it's ever going to get approved. Um, And so that from an experience point of view can look like, you know, information like, What events are their executives speaking at? Where do they show up in the market? And how can I put myself directly into that pathway so that I'm creating the least amount of friction in their experience to get to those decision makers? Can we choose our conference strategy based on running those pre-event lists through you know, intent matching AI software or some of those ABM tools and platforms that exist for you today? Uh, from From a partner perspective and our partner marketing strategy, how can I leverage my ecosystem? Who's already in the account that I'm friendly with that can help to broker that introduction or at least give me the intel on which contacts I need to be focusing on or or, how they're thinking about our competition or about our space? Um, How can I show that we're a culture fit? Again, how can I show that I understand their business? Do they have any... um, community or charitable initiatives that they're focused on that I can make sure that my marketing, um, maybe my event supports and is a fundraiser for for that organization. Um, there's just a lot of creative ways that that I think field and experience teams can really map into that ABM strategy. Yeah. And that, and that takes me to my, my, uh, my next question. In this I guess I would define it as our digital first world that we currently occupy. And I know your team, prior to hitting the record button, we talked a little about how your team is 
been going back to do some in-person events and so have we. Um, but I'm curious to understand how your team has adapted to this digital first world in, with respect to experiential account-based marketing. Yeah, so we've had a lot of fun with it. I'll tell you the truth. Um, we, I mean, I'm in the fortunate position to be working, you know, at a startup which which has that really traditional startup mentality, where very nimble, very little red tape, really easy to pivot and adjust uh, to to what's going on within the market. So I I would say that I'm very proud to say that we were a leader in transitioning to virtual delivery of uh, experiential events. Um, of our, you know, our gifting strategy of, of ways to reach those buyers. Um, so, you know, we were already built to support virtual because over 80% of our workforce was remote before COVID. Quantum has always believed in hiring the best talent no matter where they live and not letting geography become a barrier to any sort of success that we see as an organization. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the benefits of virtual that we saw are lower cost and higher reach right? Higher quantity. The challenge with is quality and engagement. And we saw that traditional virtual channels, kind of the ways that organizations were already prepared to reach people virtually was going to become very crowded very quick, right? The webinar has become a thing of the past. Email has become more and more challenging the further that we get here into COVID and people have started tuning out those channels. So you really had to look for these unique and creative ways to be able to reach folks in their home in an already very stressful situation. So I think where we really saw success was being able to acknowledge early on, we know that your situation isn't the same. So we're not going to try to sell to you the same. Uh, and we came up with some really exciting and I think creative campaigns and event experiences to be able to bring that to life. Now you know what my next question has to be. My next question has to be, give, spill the beans. What are some of the more unique programs or campaigns that, that you, your team has has championed the past 20 months? You don't have to you know, give out any trade secrets or share the uh share the recipe, but just curious to understand what are some of those programs? Yeah. So I think, you know, to the point of acknowledging that they're in their home, right. And almost leaning into that and celebrating it instead of making it a, doesn't it suck that we're all, you know, trying to work from our dining room table when you haven't left the same room for the last, you know, seven weeks. So we uh, really tried to lean into that and provide experiences that complemented the in-home or work from home experience. So last, uh, we got Halloween coming up, right? Last Halloween season, we hosted an event. Uh, I mentioned we're a continuous product design uh, platform. And so we hosted these events called PanGo. We brought in a pan pancake artist uh, and hosted these virtual events called PanGo, the art of continuous product design. And we invited our top prospects, asked them to bring their children to this event. We had no thought leadership aside from a very short blurb up at the front about we're quantum metric. Here's why we're here. Here's why we're so happy that you're here. But then we really just gave those folks an opportunity to have a delightful experience with their kids when they, you know, their kids weren't going to be able to trick or treat. We sent them all of the materials, all of the ingredients to do the pancake experience um, and really just kind of sat back and let them have a good time understanding that that buys us some more of that goodwill that earns us into that demo meeting. So I think we had to let go as field marketers of that direct line to ROI and get a lot more 
innovative and willing to kind of test things that didn't have clear traditional paths to how it was going to lead to an open meeting. Once this is behind us, once this pandemic is is behind us, and if you're listening up there sooner than later, please, what is going to be your team's approach? Is it going to be just in-person only? Are you going to have a smattering of virtual events? Are you going to have what I would define as a hybrid events strategy or hybrid experiential strategy approach? Are you going to be doing hybrid events themselves? What's what is that going to look like for your team as as we come out of this? So we're already taking a hybrid approach today. We, uh, like I said, I think we kind of led with jumping into virtual experiences. We've also led with testing the waters on folks, you know, comfort level of coming back to in-person events. So we've already deployed in-person field events in specific geographies uh, where you know COVID rates are showing that. We can be a little bit safer. We're focusing mostly on existing customers and folks that we have that trust, trusting relationship with to just kind of start to start to see what's going to work, right? And test again on, on how, how are we going to have to reinvent the live event, right? Because they're not going to come back the same way that they were um, before the pandemic. People's comfort levels and their patterns and their habits have forever changed. So that steakhouse lunch and learn event, right? Is that is that going to cut it anymore? I don't think so. And so I, I say hybrid because there's kind of two ways we talked about to, to think about a hybrid approach. One is to, to host experiences that exist in both virtual and in-person consumption. Uh, we're taking that approach with our user conference, for example, in February, where we'll have an in-person conference in a specific geography, and then also virtual streaming to attendees. I think that's a really exciting way to maximize, especially when you get those super valuable customer speakers. Make sure that you can leverage that content every which way from Sunday, record it, slice and dice it, get the analytics on it, uh, has been a really exciting part of, of virtual delivery. But then we'll also maintain kind of that calendar of both virtual and in-person experiences. Because some people are going to have the appetite to come back faster. And some might never want to come to an in-person event again and might have gotten really comfortable with consuming all of their education uh, virtually. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, that that's if you don't have the hybrid approach coming out of this, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure you... Yeah, I'm not sure you learned the appropriate lessons from the last 20 months. But I do, I you know, I do think there's going to be a clamoring for in-person experiences and events once this is all over. But I do think there is definitely going to be a segment of people that are absolutely comfortable being at home, and or they're uncomfortable being in large groups of people moving forward, and or they've moved or now work remotely so far away from a centralized city or location that it would make very little sense for them to trek into, you know, a, a large metro like San Francisco or New York or Austin or Denver or whatever to come to a field event. So it, it's um, the hybrid approach. I think is definitely here to stay, but it'll be very, it'll be very interesting to see how that kind of evolves once this, once this pandemic is over and people start coming back and start we start doing things, you know, quote unquote normal again. Uh, wanted to flip the coin on the first true story time question. So you gave me something that wasn't as, you know, as great. Um, but I'd be I'd love to know, and I think the audience would love to know what's been um it could be from COVID times, it could be prior to COVID times, but what's been one event or program or campaign that you've been just so proud of? Um, whether you you were running it or somebody on your team ran it. 
I am the most proud of the way we pivoted our user conference, Quantum Leap, uh, which we hosted in February this year. We really, I've seen, a, you know, it's certainly easier when you're putting on a conference of that magnitude with that much content to pre-record, uh, to kind of just make it an on-demand viewing opportunity. But we really challenged ourselves to say, how could we make sure that the audience has as much impact on the event as possible, such that if I'm logging in from my laptop in Denver, I feel like the event would have looked and felt different had I not been there. So we looked for as many opportunities as possible to make sure that the audience could affect the output of what we were doing. And we did it in a, a, a couple of different ways. I mean, some are, are not that creative or surprising, like standing up a Slack instance where they can stay connected with each other and react in real time to what they're seeing going on. We made sure all our content was delivered live so that we could in, integrate audience Q&A so that we made sure we were really addressing the needs of our audience and what they wanted to get out of the event with the content that we put on. Our entertainment was, we brought in a freestyle rapper named Harry Mack. I highly recommend you go look him up on YouTube. He's one of the most impressive and talented performers I've ever seen, but he kicked off the event by hosting, by doing live. Um, he he improved a rap, a freestyle flow based off of words that the audience was putting in the chat. And so they were putting in their kids' names or where they're from. And then when they'd hear him say their word or put it into a rhyme, it just created this sense of like, I'm there. I'm there. I'm not just watching. You know, I, I think when we look at talent, a lot of people have over-rotated um, in events towards, I need the, I need, now I need a big name. Now I need a big draw. Nobody's going to come and just watch, you know, me interview a customer. They want to see me interview Oprah. I would rather see Barbara Walters interview Oprah, right? I'd rather go see a recorded, like a professional. So I, I think the idea of what is a draw and what makes people feel like, oh my God, those wow moments really shifted uh, when, we, when we talked about virtual because access to celebrity has only gotten higher but meaningful experience where I'm engaging and where I feel like I'm being heard and making an impact has gotten so much lower. Yep, absolutely. We actually did a, uh, a virtual uh, magic event. And we had, I mean, it's so <laughs> virtual magic is, is a thing. It's, it's interesting how it operates, but it's a thing. You can't record, by the way, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but you can't record variety of reasons. But we had the a virtual, uh, not, not a virtual magician, we had a magician come on. Um, and he was interacting with people, obviously, over Zoom, and they were doing like card tricks. And it was like, it was blowing my mind. People loved it. Like, they absolutely loved the interactivity, but it was blowing my mind how it the show kind of still operated and worked in a virtual setting. But I think to your point, they found that you know, probably a, a magician they may have heard of, but not like David Blaine or anything like that nature. Um, they may have heard of, left them with such an indelible impression that they were talking about. We got a bunch of emails the next day from, from customers and prospects who were like, that was really, I've, I've done the wine tasting. I've done the, the chef thing. I've done this, that, but I've not seen a virtual magic event so far. And it was really, really interesting and fun how you guys did it. Well, it's one of those things, the, the similarity there is, I think buyers are wise to the fact that you're going to give out the recording later, right? I don't actually need to register for that event to get access to the content that you're putting out. 
So by creating those experiences that are much more interesting had you been there live than watching the playback, that's the key to really getting that live attention. We want to be cognizant of your time and we're going to, we're going to wrap up here, but before we wrap up, we do like a, uh, like a rapid fire um, inside the actor studio, James Lipton type of thing before we close each show. So I have about two or three questions left. Uh, you know, succinct responses, one word, one sentence, but you know, don't feel, don't feel you need to give us a, a local here. So um, very quickly, what is the hardest part about what you do every day? Rising customer expectations and they never go down. <laughs> <laughs> What is the, your most favorite part about what you do every day? Access to customers and the relationships that you get to build with them. If you could send a Slack or text message to every field marketer or experiential marketer in the world today, what would it say? You are not a party planner and shouldn't settle for that perception. Ooh, I love that. I'm going to underscore that, bold it, make the font size bigger on that one. I love that. Well, Caitlin, it's been great talking to you. Where can people follow you online? I don't, I don't know if you're like active on social or not, or I don't know if you do that or not. But if if you do, where can people follow you online? LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter? I don't, I don't know. Connect with me on LinkedIn for sure. It's Caitlin Tucker. Uh, my handle is Tucker Caitlin, though, actually. And then uh, on Instagram at Ktuck, C A I T U C K. All right. Perfect. All right. Caitlin, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you taking the time to chat with us here on True Stories of Field Marketing. Until next time, audience, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. True Stories of Field Marketing is a production of Splash, an event marketing platform that makes your events measurable, on-brand, beautiful, and easier than ever. You can enjoy True Stories of Field Marketing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. I am Billy Bonson. We'll see you next time.